0: Hello, I'm Doug Hadaway. You're listening to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to help you achieve ambitious goals for people and the planet. Mira Manny is the director of the Children, Families, and Communities program at the David and Lucille Packard Foundation. We met when her team had a new vision for helping young children grow up healthy and ready for school. The program had not invested in strategic communications before, but wanted to be strategic in articulating an aspirational vision and developing it in partnership with the organizations they support in the fields of early childhood health and learning. Fast forward five years, Mira's program and grantees are driving a shared narrative about what children need to start out life smart and strong. On this episode of Achieve Great Things, Mira talks about her journey and the power of a shared narrative to achieve greater collective impact. We met about five years ago when your team had a new vision about creating impact for children in their first five years of life. Mm -hmm. And the program hadn't invested in strategic communications before, but you wanted to be strategic in articulating that vision and engaging the field around it. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to today, you've been supporting quite a variety of organizations to deliver a shared narrative about what children need in their first years of life and to build their capacity to communicate. Uh, I'd love to talk with you about that journey and lessons you've learned along the way. What was the new vision for early childhood?
1: The vision really for us in early childhood was one, um, to be sure that every child across the nation with a particular focus for us in California, grew up healthy, ready to learn, prepared for school, because all of the evidence Um, as recent as even two weeks ago points to the fact that if the early years are really strong, then fundamentally what you're doing is laying the foundation for lifelong success and multiple indicators, right? Whether it's the ability to hold down a job, the make appropriate decisions, um, um, earn a living wage. And so the... The early childhood years, we believe, are so important for laying that kind of foundation. And the piece of getting it right is not just about creating opportunities that, children, that give children seats to sit in or places to go, but it's what happens in those settings. It's quality. Mm-hmm. And so for us, it was about, having quality early learning experiences for all children birth to age five.
0: And you sounds like there's some recent news. Um, you mentioned something that came out a couple of weeks ago.
1: Yes, yeah, so the, um, Jim Heckman, as you know, is, is the economist uh, mm-hmm. who's been doing longitudinal studies uh, of students who were part of a Perry Preschool program years ago. Um, And so 50, 60 years into this, looking at lifelong outcomes of kids who attended high-quality preschool is something that he's just talked about. And it underscores the importance of that experience.
0: Mm. Is there a data point or anything, an insight that leapt out at you from that?
1: Really what leapt out at me was people's ability to participate Um, in the economy, Uh Um, an individual's ability to make good decisions and uh, stay out of trouble and not get into trouble with the law, Um, the ability to find and hold a job. Um, And so when you you think of those variables, that's really what provides anybody the stability they need to, to feel like they are um, contributing member of society you know and it's such a foundational thing
0: mm. and the foundation for those are
1: in the first to- five years yeah. yeah yeah
0: can you tell us a, a short story about a moment in your life or in your experience that opened your eyes to the importance of this approach to the work
1: um yeah, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make this personal because this has been a passion of mine for many 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 years. But uh, my father was a refugee in the Second World War, um, extremely young when they had to walk um, after Japanese invasion in Burma from Burma to India, and they came to India as refugees. He was, uh, he was 11 at the time with uh, 10 siblings under him. And as they walked, Doug, what they had was really only each other and their mother because their father had to stay behind. Mm. These are dire circumstances. Um, and all of them, all of the siblings have grown up to be amazing human beings. And they've they've always talked about the value and the strength of the care that they got as they moved from camp to camp. And my um, great grandfather, who walked with them, he started actually um, all of these little play groups when as they moved from camp to camp, with young children, just as a way to distract them, just as a way to keep them engaged. And they they counted the rocks, they counted the pebbles, but they supported each other through this process. And until my father passed away recently, whenever you asked him, what was the most profound experience that shaped who you became, he would go back to that walk and he would go back to those times in the playgroup so it was a seminal experience for me personally and then of course you know you you study about brain development you understand the potential in the first 5 years and then you look at really the quality of the adult child relationships when you think about what happened in those camps and then you think about really what we're learning about the key lever for change and supporting a child's development is really the quality of how adults nurture children and what happens in that dynamic and that dyad or in a larger setting where multiple adults are there. But it's really the quality of those relationships.
0: Hmm. So you were aiming uh, at this time five years ago to get, The grantees you work with and partners to sort of join together in uh, sort of a shared narrative about this idea, right?
1: Absolutely. You know, when so let's step back and look at the word quality. You know, the word quality itself suggests a set of standards, um, something that's really impersonal, um, something that may people may think is all about compliance and I really felt when we launched the strategy that we needed to demystify it. We really wanted to uh, show how it could be done in a way that's very achievable. And when you think of how one changes behavior over time, it's really how, how can you do things within the day, within your existing routines? How do you improve practice? So the narrative for me was really important in two ways. One is demystifying it so that it feels achievable. And two, allowing every adult who has an interaction with a child to know that they can, they can offer that with a level of quality. Um, and, and then I think to use, um, to use sort of a strategic Uh, planning approach or some of that language, it's really to create demand for the change you want to see. The more people talk about it, the more they think it's achievable, the more they test and try it out, you are creating the drumbeat for the change you want to see.
0: Is that why you invested in communications to create that
1: drumbeat? Absolutely. Absolutely. I I saw communications as Um, the way to do it.
0: This was sort of new for you, right? Seemed at the time, I recall your program, it was you all sort of dipping your toe in the water for the first time.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So the reason we, that we landed here really was when you, when you think about how philanthropies approached um, quality early childhood traditionally, it's been funding programs to build evidence, and then you've got the scientific research, and then you support public policy uh, to adopt the standards in those evidence-based programs, and then you really think that the programs are gonna get implemented because of the passage of public policy, right? But that, as, as we know today, has been a path that has not worked, and it hasn't worked because we haven't created Uh, the narrative and the demand for it among the folks on the ground who are actually implementing it. Neither have we made it achievable in the way that we talk about it. So we've regulated so many of these things that are actually much more about human interaction and can be done in a a casual conversation between an adult and child, sort of on an everyday basis.
0: So that was a very ambitious vision you had then to really equip every adult who touches a child's life in the first five years.
1: That's right. And, and so what that meant for us is that we, everything that we thought about in terms of the grant making approach had to point to how to achieve the outcomes we hope to see at scale. And the way that you achieve the outcomes, I think a huge piece of uh, having everybody march to the same beat, and that beat is the narrative.
0: Mm. Say more about that for a, you know, program officer uh, who's not familiar with communication strategy or narrative. What more would you tell them about the importance of this shared narrative and a drum beat?
1: Um. I would, I, would, I would ask a program officer to sit back and think about what their leave behind will be when the work is done and how you define success. Um, and then what is it going to take to get from here to there? And who all do you need on that journey with you? And the importance of everybody on that journey understanding that they're moving in the same direction and the narrative gives you that ability. And once people buy into the narrative, it's also really, then I think it helps a program officer go back as ideas come to the table, as the strategy gets adopted uh, and adapted, because especially when philanthropy is trying to create this kind of social change, one, it takes time two, it's informed by an ever-changing context. So you're going to have to adapt your strategy. But if you have a narrative that it hangs under, that holds it together, you can test every new idea against it and say, is this really going to help? Does this move the quality of the adult-child interaction? If that's, does this get you to the outcomes you
0: wanna see. It sounds like for you the narrative is a sort of a vision as well as a touchstone along the way.
1: Completely, yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. So it probably took some doing to get a lot of different (laughs) individuals and organizations working on different aspects of this issue to come together around a shared narrative. Tell us about that.
1: It it did, you know, and I think we learned some really, really uh, important things. Um, And that is that um, people need to understand really how to get to the destination. And not only that, grantees need a chance to help you develop and shape the narrative as well. So very quickly, our grantees and even our team internally agreed to kindergarten readiness as the, as the North Star. But that's, that's a piece of jargon that means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. And so where the narrative became really helpful was bringing stakeholders together and saying, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? And if we are all successful, what will it look like? That led to them saying, you know, for us, it's really not about a score on a test but it's about how the teacher engages the child. It's about how the parent engages the child. It's about how the informal caregiver engages the child. So you begin to, you begin to peel this onion and, um, and you start to see where you have congruence in your vision, what you need to talk about, and then it's something that, um, that you develop together. And what my biggest learning is that while it's a process and it sometimes takes longer than you want, at the end of the day, you've got such deep buy-in to the narrative Mm. um, that it's no longer the foundation's narrative, it's really the feels narrative.
0: An authentically shared narrative that everyone created together.
1: Absolutely, Mm.
0: absolutely. We've talked on this podcast a lot about jargon and the need to get beyond buzzwords. It sounds like that's exactly what you did.
1: Yes absolutely. It has to feel um, Daga, I'm convinced that things have to feel achievable and it and people have to be able to do it within the scope of their day and um, creating the narrative and and having the narrative informed by what you know to be true, that's really where the evidence comes in. It's the interplay of what you know from the research with what what, um, you know is important for people to have by way of a set of skills and strengths and approaches that helps you better.
0: So you went through the process of developing a shared narrative with your grantees and Keeping your audiences in mind um, as well. Who were your audiences for this new narrative?
1: We had multiple audiences. You know, our initial audience was the grantees itself. Mm-hmm. But then very quickly, when you work with grantees to co-create the narrative, it's their audience. Who is it that they're trying to convince? So it's the policymakers, it's, um, depending on the setting, it could be parents. Um, and, And then it could be state administrators, it could be federal administrators. So it becomes a broader audience, you have sort of a concentric circle. And um, what was helpful with the narrative was also thinking about what is core in the narrative that stays the same irrespective of how far you go out in the concentric circle. And how do you you, for each circle, depending on the audience, how can you add some things that uh, are actually relevant to that audience itself?
0: Right, so your shared narrative, you wanted to sort of inspire people no matter which audience they were in, but then drill down into any specific issues or concerns they might have.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's right.
0: So you started out, your first step was sort of getting the grantees to co-create a shared narrative. What were other major steps along the way to where you are now?
1: Um, I think... uh, We built this together and when we felt like we had all come to a place that that felt comfortable, it was really then bringing the grantees together to help them think about what their approaches to their work um, are, both individually and collectively. Um, And the, the second piece of the work for us was internal to our team was really becoming comfortable with the narrative becoming sort of understanding what the implications are for grant making and how we can model the use of the narrative as we did our work with grantees so it was both an internal and an external focus
0: is there an example you can give us of that like a big idea in the narrative that shaped somehow changed or shaped the way you did grant making or communicating?
1: Um, I, I think so let me let me do the internal first as an example mm-hmm. um, Once the narrative uh, came together, we actually did some training with with staff and uh, program officers, sat with communications folks, and really just uh, got trained in the narrative itself, they were able to talk about what it felt like to say what they were saying, and they were able to customize it so that it was their voice and it was not a stump speech. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the program officer on my team, who really leads the work around the practice Um, and place-based work in the three communities in California was able to embed it within the context of his work. Here's, Here's really how Fresno is focused on dual language learners. And here's how their professional development approach improves the interactions between teachers and children in the preschool classrooms. Here's how it improves the interaction between uh, caregivers and children in the informal care setting. And so he was able to take that and, um, and really use it to talk about his work. We have somebody else on our team who really focuses on policy and state and federal policy. And so they were able to take the narrative and say, uh, and, and really be in Sacramento and talk about the importance of professional development in improving a set of skills that teachers have in early childhood settings and what those priority practices are and how important that is. And then actually provide examples of how that looks and what a policymaker should be looking for when they visit an early childhood facility. So it it really supports, while the narrative stays consistent, it it changes and supports each program officer in the way that they would use it and the way that they do their grant making and the, and the focus of their grant making.
0: And that really is so important that it, back to being authentic, that people really do make it their own.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I will say one thing, it is, you have to give people time and um it and as a director it has been important to me and so i have chosen to invest that kind of time in it but it's it, without time and if you just give people a cheat sheet to speak from mm. it really doesn't sound authentic
0: and you think that's important to the outcomes to really engaging people and achieving the vision
1: Absolutely. Mm. It's also really um, critical in creating authentic relationships between program officers and the grantees. You know, if you don't believe in the change you want to see and aren't able to talk about it in a compelling way, then it would be really hard for a grantee to take that vision seriously.
0: Mm. We hear that a lot from folks who work at foundations um, who come to us because they say exactly what you just said, I have trouble <laughs> explaining what we do or getting people excited about what we do, um, clarifying what we do. What were the challenges that uh, you all faced?
1: I think I think an early and initial challenge for me was uh, what it meant, uh, you know, what does a quality relationship between an adult and a child look like, and bringing that to life, and um, and being able to really say, so when you see um, a parent with a child asking questions and a child um, and parenting engaging in in a conversation that is. Uh, let me give you an example here. They're, a parent and a child, they're by, they're by a pond. The child throws a stone into the pond and says, look, mom, how far that went. And, and the stone sinks. It's a perfect opportunity for the parent to talk about, right? And the parent saying, wow, what happened to that stone? Did it disappear? Where did it go? Oh, did it sink? Why did, why did that happen? So if, if the program officer is really able to bring to life those kinds of examples as they're talking about then bringing it back to the strategy, it brings the strategy to life. And I think investing time early on in actually making it authentic, having authentic examples, that's really important, Doug.
0: So thinking about all the time, investment of time and resources you've made in communications, and it sounds like at a very personal level, sort of equipping program officers um, to be effective communicators, convening grantees, what would you say looking back on it, what has that contributed to? Has, Has it contributed to any notable achievements or impact? How would you describe the outcomes so far?
1: Yeah. Um, I think it's contributed to a a real, real confidence in the ability to to implement strategy. Um, And it's also really allowed our program officers to be much more visible in the field. So they are out there, Doug, doing presentations, being invited to at grant makers for education, really talking about the strategy. Uh, they have written uh, op-eds. They are blogging about this. Um, and there is an internal communications plan that they've all signed up for and bought into that allows them to, to have a voice in this conversation. And I, let me just say, I think on my end, I think they've been much more effective in the field as a result. Hmm.
0: I know at a lot of foundations that we've worked with over the years, there's sort of a culture shift going on. Um, that sounds very much like what you're talking about, where the original sort of state was not being very vocal. And now you're talking about the program team having a voice. Was, mm-hmm. that a cult, cult, was that a culture shift at the Packard Foundation?
1: I think it was definitely a culture shift within our particular program, you know, to really elevate the voices of program officers. Um, and it's one that I, uh, I did consciously
0: And is it different from sort of traditional strategic planning that people do? Um, Because a lot of that goes on in this sector. Um, How does this relate to that?
1: I think it has to work hand in glove because, you know, um, in order to to develop a narrative, you've got to have some, uh, you've got to have an issue you're working on a set of, Uh, problems you're trying to solve um, enabling conditions in which you're trying to move the issue but I think that sometimes we are guilty of just focusing on the problems, the enabling conditions and not really on the promise of what can be different and I think the narrative helps you articulate what can be different uh, and puts you on that path.
0: I think we should probably, for our listeners, talk about what we mean by narrative. (laughs) I was thinking about it. Yeah. You said it's a popular sort of household word these days, but it means a lot of things to a lot of people. How how are you defining it?
1: Uh, I think the narrative for me is, um, what's the story I want to be able to tell, and what's the destination that I'm heading towards?
0: And the components of that, as we worked together to craft one, we used a narrative framework that started with putting people in the picture so everyone who would be part of this change could see themselves in it and articulating a shared vision or destination. And then I heard you talk about not only defining problems, but also defining the solutions.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So if I'm a program officer who hears this and said, yes, I need a narrative, what would you suggest as their first two or three steps to get from blank page to a narrative that's working for them in the way that yours is working for you?
1: I think I would, I would, ask, um, I would ask them, given that we're all tied to strategy, really what is it that the strategy has set out to achieve? And what bets have they made vis-a-vis levers for change? Um, and then get underneath why they picked that, what they think the promise of that is, and try to get to the strategy and try to get to the narrative.
0: So it's flowing from your strategy, of course. Who do we need to motivate and yeah. mobilize to achieve this?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And you had said uh, internally that you're team has greater confidence in their ability to execute a strategy is one of the outcomes of this. Uh, What about on grantees or other stakeholders, other outcomes you're seeing?
1: Can you say, can you ask me that again? I'm sorry.
0: You had said that internally as a result of the work you've been doing on a shared narrative Mm -hmm. and training to help people communicate effectively and working together that, one of the outcomes you've seen is that your program team is more confident in their ability to execute a strategy. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if there are other outcomes that you've seen in any way from this work that you've been doing.
1: Um, the, the other outcomes are really it's deepened relationships with the field. And, um, and the relationships are authentic, and the and the uh, the engagement continues to be one of a lot of give and take with the field, where we learn constantly and we're learning together. And because we've built this together, there's a level of transparency about what our grantees are learning and what we're learning and what's working and what isn't working. So it's effectiveness in the grant making, but it's also sort of authentic relationships on the ground in the execution of the strategy.
0: So the co-creation continues.
1: It absolutely continues. Uh, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Yeah. And, and we are very transparent, Doug, about what we are learning and where, and and we share that with our grantees as well.
0: What's next for the program when you think about this piece of the work?
1: Um, I really think, I don't don't think we're done. I mean, one of the things that, uh, that I think we are learning is that communications is an ongoing thing it doesn't it isn't something there isn't a beginning middle and end it will sidecar with us and become an integral part of our work till the end Um, i think that as the strategy cycle shifts and we're in different phases we will be revisiting and strengthening the narrative and thinking about you know we're in the second half of a 10-year strategy so at this point, we're looking at solidifying gains, talking about things that we will do differently, and we are actually starting to talk about exit. Things that we, you know, what is the leave behind and how do we collectively with our grantees be sure that we keep our eye on that prize? So it's not, it. so I think the next uh, the next phase is how does this evolve with us? And then I, I also think um, th- that, you know, one big leave behind for us is how can we embed the importance of a focus. on the the supports, the skills and competencies of the adults and children's lives, how can we embed that in institutions that are gonna be focused on serving young children in this country?
0: Sounds like they need to adopt a similar narrative.
1: Exactly, and so that will be our focus in this next five
0: years. Interesting. On that note, by the way, we um, did some work with the uh, President Obama's team toward the end of the administration to do something down those lines with um, federal agencies that do economic development. If, mm. you're, in- if you're interested, I could uh, I could share that with you.
1: I would love to see that.
0: Yeah, they're, um, they said we need a, a narrative and a storytelling strategy about how we do economic development. And I, when they called, I thought it was going to be like a victory lap, you know, get some credit but it was really about sharing lessons and trying to as very similarly to the way you're talking about it. How do we share the lessons so that it's really adopted and carried on?
1: Yeah. Um,
0: well, I'll shoot you an email separately and um, we can chat about that.
1: That's great. That's great.
0: Um, Cause an interesting piece of that was we went to the local areas where they were working. It was very place-based work and interviewed people and got their stories and from their stories derived sort of a shared narrative. It was an interesting process. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful.
0: Any other parting thoughts? We've covered all my questions and then some.
1: Well, uh, you know, it's been Thank you for the opportunity to sit down and reflect on this. Uh, and a couple of things that I did not mention that actually came up in a reflection session that we did with the uh, Hadaway team was uh, was really uh, thinking about what was unique about the work, the way that uh, we work at CFC, you know, and it it's about acknowledging the fact that um, we are taking a whole-child approach, that things take long, that that we have a commitment to sharing our learning, um, and that we are willing to take some risks and understand that we may make mistakes and course correct, and that um, To get this right, it has to be authentic, and we must partner with grantees and co-create solutions.
0: Those are very wise words, and it really is a unique and ambitious vision and program. I'm sure it's been a great inspiration to many people in the field and will continue to be, so we appreciate your taking this time to reflect on it with us.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity and and, um, thanks to Hathaway Communications for the role it's played in getting us this far.
0: We appreciate that.